I don't know how to feel about how fast the kids bolt out of here when we move into this section. I don't know if I should be offended or what. Or maybe our kids' ministries is knocking out of the park every Sunday night. I guess that's a good thing. Or if they're, oh, no, Andrew's about to start talking. Let's get out of here if that's what's about to go down. Well, let me invite you to take out your Bibles and to turn them open to Mark chapter 8. Find your way to the passage our friend Becky read for us a few moments ago. Like many of you, my wife and I, one of our favorite things to do uh, with other couples is to play, other couples, other people uh, in our missional communities, whatever the case may be, we love playing board games. Uh, and we love a wide array of board games. I love the highly strategic board games like Settlers. I also like the mindless games like Farkle. Uh, we just do all those types of things. We, we play uh, many games. Uh, the one game we do not play often is Apples to Apples. Uh, apples to Apples puts too much strain on our marriage because Kim never picks my card, and she needs to pick my card. Uh, I know you. This is you, but she never picks it. And so it puts too much strain and stress on our marriage to play Apples to Apples very consistently. Well, recently I was looking through some uh, board game options. I was just doing some, uh, just playing around online, trying to find other games, and I stumbled across a game that is real, very, very relevant to our passage tonight, and it's a game that was actually made by Parker Brothers, and it was a game that was made in 1955, and I guess they were trying to pander to the Christian culture of America, thinking, well, we can sell a lot of these, we can get the Christians buying this, and so they came up with a game called Going to Jerusalem, and it's a game about discipleship. Uh, it's one of those games where you don't, might, your character may not be taking a top hat or a tiny dog like in Monopoly. This is the type of game where you get to actually be a disciple. And so you play this game and you find a little plastic figure and, and the figurine looks like a disciple. You know, it's, it's uh, usually, I think all the figures are, are guys with big beards, long robes, sandals, and a staff. And, and that's your character. That's who you get to move through the board. That's who you play with on the game. In order to move through the game, and the way the game works is that you roll dice and you answer questions. When a question is asked, they provide you with a little uh, black New Testament, and you look up answers in the back, and the better you do, the, the faster you get to move along with, with Jesus. And the game just moves through all types of regions and all types of areas. Very, it, it follows a very similar path to the path we've seen Jesus and his disciples traveling in the book of Mark. I mean, you start off in Bethlehem, although that's not where the gospel starts. That's where the game starts. starts off in Bethlehem, and... And you walk with Jesus to the Mount of Olives, to Bethsaida, to Capernaum, to uh, you, you have a moment in the stormy sea, you go to Nazareth, you, you go to Bethany, which is where, uh, near where our passage tonight takes place. And, but then if you win the game, if you play really well, if you answer the questions and if you get the best roles, then the climax of the game comes when you get to go with Jesus into Jerusalem for what's known as the triumphal entry. And that's where the game ends. So all throughout the game, you, 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 the game's just full of these nice stories with Jesus. You don't meet any demons in the game. You don't meet any angry religious leaders in the game. And if you win, you just get to journey with Jesus when he's triumphantly entering into Jerusalem. But you never actually follow Jesus to the cross. There's no crucifixion in that game. And sadly, if there's no crucifixion, that also means that there's no resurrection. And I can't help but think, just in light of that, or as you, as you, well, you just kind of play that game, you make your way through the nice stories and a safe adventure of what might be called sanitized non-discipleship, I, I can't help but wonder if some of us perhaps have subscribed. I can't help but wonder if that game reflects a form of discipleship that some of us have subscribed to. 
maybe some of us in this space. I can't help but wonder if there's any room for the crucifixion in our lives. And if there's no room for the crucifixion in our lives, then I assure you there's no room for the resurrection in our lives. See, the kingdom of God is one of those things where life always comes from death. Death gives birth to life. That's how the kingdom of God works. That's the culture of the gospel. That's the culture of discipleship. When we look at a passage such as Mark chapter 8, and we see the way the fate of Jesus is woven into the fate of his disciples, how there's this symbiotic relationship shared between the Savior and his followers. And so before we dive into this passage, let me ask you to consider, is your discipleship decidedly crossless? Is it decidedly crossless? And one of the reasons, one of the ways that you can answer that question is by thinking whether or not you maximize the life of Jesus, you maximize the teaching of Jesus, you maximize the miracles of Jesus, but perhaps you minimize the significance and the necessity of the crucifixion of Jesus for salvation. Is your discipleship decidedly crossless? A Christianity without a cross or a Christ without a cross means a discipleship without self-denial, a discipleship without sacrifice, and ironically, a discipleship that is devoid of those themes will forever be a discipleship devoid of life. And perhaps one of the reasons why the life of the kingdom isn't exploding out of you is because there's too much of you that's still alive. There's too much of you that needs to die. There's too much of you that needs to submit and surrender to the reality of who Jesus, who God is for you in Jesus. And, and so you're simply standing in your own way of life. You're standing in your own way of hope and joy and passion and purpose. And so tonight, my prayer is that all of us would die. That whatever's hindering the life of the kingdom in us and through us, I pray that it would, that it would die. I think this is where Jesus forces us to go in this passage. Because in this moment, in verse 31, he takes up the theme of his crucifixion and he talks about its relevancy for, um, first he talks about its necessity and then he kind of spills over and he says, now this has some huge implications for anyone who would follow me. And, and so you look at verse 31 and you pick up the conversation and here you have Jesus and his disciples, as we said last week, they're walking on what's called on the way, a key phrase in chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10, a phrase that's used three time, five times in these three chapters, illustrating the, the journey of discipleship, the process of discipleship, and understanding that your discipleship uh, hinges on how this dynamic swells up in your life, how your understanding of the cross in your Christianity, your understanding of the resurrection in your fellowship of Jesus. And at this point, Jesus has reached the, the peak of his popularity. His reputation is, for the mo outside of just a religious minority, his reputation is at a high. People are interested in Jesus. People are attracted to Jesus. People are drawn to Jesus. He's kind of reached the peak of his popularity. And what's interesting is you look at this passage, and from here on out, this chapter represents a hinge, a transition. From this point on, Jesus and his disciples are going to turn their attention to Jerusalem. They're going to move to Jerusalem. And what's interesting about that move is that, yes, geographically, this means that everything starts going south. As Jesus has been operating in that northern region of Israel, from this moment on, they're going to start moving south to Jerusalem and understand that that geography speaks figuratively to what else is going on. Everything in this gospel is about to go south. Jesus is going to Jerusalem to die. 
And his disciples are following him in that direction. And Jesus expects them to. He invites them to. And and the strange thing of this passage is that Jesus believes that's what's best for them. That this crucifixion and resurrection, this culture of life coming through death is what's best for his people. And ultimately, it's what's best for the world. So you look at verse 31, and we start talking about the way of the Christ being the way of the cross. This is what Jesus is getting after in verse 31. If you want to know what Jesus was all about, the purpose of his arrival in the world, this is the heart of it. This is the crux of it. This is what he says in verse 31. And Jesus began to teach the disciples that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Notice verse 32. And he said this plainly. He said this clearly. There's no ambiguity to what Jesus is saying in these words. He's saying the Son of Man, the reason why I've come is to suffer, is to be rejected, to be crucified, and then to rise again. This is the core. So if there's no room for the crucifixion in your Christianity, there's no room for the Christ in your Christianity. The cross is everything. Jesus was the Messiah, and his Messiahship was emphatically fixed and focused upon the cross. You and I cannot understand Jesus apart from the cross. This is why we talk about the cross so much in our church. This is why the cross shapes who we are as his followers. It informs our worship. It inflames our service. It is the paradigm and the power of our salvation. The cross is everything. And this is why. The Son of Man must suffer. He must be rejected. He must be killed. And after three days, yes, he will surely rise again. Now, when Jesus begins to teach through this, he begins to explain this plainly and communicate this reality. Understand that Jesus is taking two images in these words, and he's welding them together in an unprecedented manner. Two images drawn from the Old Testament that guys like Peter and the average Jewish person in the first century did not naturally or eagerly put together. See, two times Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man in this passage. And when he does so, he's echoing Daniel chapter 7, that passage you read earlier in the reflection. But by way of reminder, let me look at it again. Daniel chapter 7, Jesus draws this title, this description of being the Son of Man from this passage. And this, listen to the description. Listen to what's being said. Daniel says, I I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given, get this, dominion and glory and a kingdom. So the Son of Man is tied to the kingdom of God. It's tied to glory. The Son of Man is a kingly figure. And then you go on and it says that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him, should serve the Son of Man. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So when Jesus says the son of, when he refers to himself as the son of man, he's pushing the image of a king, of a royal figure, of the Messiah, the Christ that Peter affirmed in last week's passage. But then Jesus not only talks about being the son of man, he then describes the son of man in a way that shocked Peter, so much so that Peter rebuked him for doing it. Because when Peter heard Jesus say son of man, Most likely, he thought about this passage, the way most average Jewish people who knew the Old Testament would. They would think about dominance. They would think about kingdom. They would think about glory and power. They would not think about one who must suffer. 
one who would be rejected. They wouldn't think about one who would be killed. But yet Jesus takes this image of a king and he then attaches it to the image of a corpse. And he's drawing on language from another place in the Old Testament that before Jesus did this in the Gospels, many people didn't think about, they didn't consider, they didn't pull these threads together the way Jesus does. So you have a passage like in Isaiah chapter 53 of written about 700 plus years before Jesus arrived describing who's called the suffering servant, this one who would suffer and die. Isaiah chapter 53, check out that passage again. I don't post it on the screen, but I'll just read it for you. Isaiah 53, the whole chapter speaks to this. I'll just give you a couple of examples. Beginning in verse 4, referring to the Messiah, the Christ, the suffering servant. says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. This is the image that Christ is pulling together in Mark chapter 8. This image of a king and a corpse, of a, of a royal figure who would suffer and die. And that's why the Peter said, this cannot happen. Because the Messiah isn't supposed to go that way. Jesus, the Messiah is just supposed to bring in God's dominion, his kingdom, his reign. He's not supposed to do it this way. But Peter didn't understand the nature of God's kingdom. That in the kingdom of God, life always comes through death. The kingdom of God comes. The resurrection only happens through crucifixion. So you have this moment where Peter in Mark chapter 8 smells what Jesus is saying and then he rebukes him. It's a harsh word. He says, verse 32, and Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Can you imagine what that's like? Trying to rebuke Jesus? Maybe he's riding a high because he answered last week's question so well, right? Jesus said, who do, the, who do you say that I am? Peter said, you are the Christ. And Jesus affirms him. So maybe he thinks he's got it. He's rolling. There's nothing more for him to learn. He's arrived. And so when he hears Jesus, he says, oh, wait, wait, Jesus, you don't understand. You're the Christ. You're not supposed to suffer and be rejected and died. And so he tries to rebuke Jesus. But then Jesus does what he always does. He always rebukes for the sake of redemption. He always corrects for the purpose of transformation. And so, although Peter rebuked him, Jesus then immediately rebuked Peter. And he does so in some harsh words. He says, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So you have this image of a suffering Messiah, of a Messiah who must suffer. And that's, that's pretty heavy. Because in verse 31, there is that word must. And it's this idea of this divine necessity that the Son of Man must endure these types of things. Now, Christians throughout the history of the church have been trying to explain why it was necessary for Christ to suffer and die. And there's been a lot of, uh, there's a lot of reasons. You can't really summarize it in kind of Twitter form and saying exclusively and entirely that this is why the Son of Man must suffer. This is why he had to die on the cross. There's a lot of reasons to it. And it's when you think about Jesus' death on the cross and you think about the gospel, you always want to think about it as a multifaceted diamond, as one beautiful whole. But you turn that diamond and you look at it from different angles and it sheds different light and you see different beauty, you see different glory, but all of it comes together in this, in this diamond, in this precious stone. Well, when it comes to the death of Christ and all the reasons why it was necessary, it's very important that we don't just take one facet and run with it to the exclusion of all the others. 
If we really want our hearts to swell in love, faith, and trust in Jesus, we need to take all things into consideration. Now, I'm not covering all those things tonight, but I do want to put three reasons before you. Three reasons why it was necessary for Jesus to die, why the way of the Christ is the way of the cross. The first reason we can say is this. Jesus did it for the sake of love. The reason the Son of Man had to suffer, be rejected, die, and rise again is for the sake of love. Jesus knows that when he stepped into the world, he was stepping into a world that did not know how to love. That love has malfunctioned in human existence. That love is no longer operating in the way that it should operate. In fact, human beings do not know how to love purely. You see, typically the way that we love another person, even the way some of us might even love God, is that we love them to the degree that they are able to benefit us. Love in a fallen world is always consumeristic. Love in a fallen world is always self-oriented. Love in a fallen world is always, I'm 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 gonna love you to a certain point, but no further. I'm gonna love you to the point that you're meeting me or that you're satisfying some need or some craving, that you're contributing to my self-worth or to my value. I'm gonna love you to that point, but the moment I no longer sense benefit from you and you're not adding value to me and to my life, then I'm going to drop you. That's the way we love. We love very conditionally. We love very consumeristically. But what we see in Jesus, and one of the reasons what was necessary for him to die was to flip the script on that understanding, to show us what the Bible refers to as agape love, as divine love, as God-oriented, God-centered, God-honoring love. And this is the type of love that is, yes, unconditional. It is a type of love that is, in a sense, unilateral. It is a type of love that comes to a person not because that person contributes anything to the welfare or the value of the lover, but simply because the lover is a lover. The lover loves. When it comes to God loving the world and sending his son to die on a cross, and through that, demonstrating his love that while you and I were still yet sinners, Christ died for us, in doing that, he was showing us a whole other category of love. Understand that Jesus loves you not because you attribute anything to his value. You do not attribute anything to the worth of Christ in the universe. Jesus isn't loving you for his own benefit. He's loving you because he loves you. And so when Jesus goes to the cross, he had nothing to gain as it relates to his own self-worth or his own value. When Christ goes to the cross, he does so exploding with love, overflowing with love, loving you and I unconditionally, loving you and I in many senses unilaterally. Jesus died on the cross for the sake of love. And when he creates new people, when he brings us into the kingdom, when he when we die to self and we are spiritually risen again, and we come to life in Christ, all of a sudden we now have a frame of reference to love like that. So that when Jesus commands us, say in John's gospel, love as you are loved, he's saying to love in this kind of degree, love with this type of quality. And it would be utterly impossible to love that way unless you first receive that type of love, right? In order to give that type of love, you've got to get it. You've got to receive it. Jesus died to give you this kind of love. And he died so that you can in turn 
relay that type of love to those around you. One of the reasons why marriages don't work is because husbands and wives don't know how to love this way. One of the reasons marriages fall apart is because you have two consumers trying to love one another. But if we get the kind of love that is awarded to us and available to us in the gospel, we receive that, we're able to relay it. You find a marriage that is centered on this unconditional, otherworldly, alien love of a crucified and risen Savior, you're going to find the capacity for marriage to work. You're going to find the capacity for your marriage to endure the hardship and to work through the struggles. If this type of love is received by the spouses, this type of love can then be relayed back and forth. So he died, yes, for the sake of love. And there's a lot more that could be said about that, but let's move on. Not only did Christ had to die for the sake of love so that we could have our perspective on love shifted and receive the power to love in a kingdom-oriented way, but then he also died for the sake of forgiveness. He was crucified and risen for the sake of forgiveness. Now, you want to think about it this way. Forgiveness always entails some type of suffering on behalf of the person who is forgiving. Imagine your car is parked on the street in front of your house in the middle of the night, and a drunk driver comes swerving up the street and, and clips your car. Causes some damage, it wakes you up, you walk outside and you see the damage, the drunk driver's still sitting there and you start getting into a conversation. Now, when they harmed your car, a debt was created, right? Somebody's going to have to pay for the damage. Either the drunk driver's going to have to pay for it, or you're going to have to pay for it, but somebody's going to have to pay for it. The car isn't going to fix itself. Offenses always create debts, and those debts always have to pay, be paid. And you see this not only in that type of scenario, but think about your own interpersonal relationships with other humans. Somebody offends you. Somebody sins against you. Somebody hurts your relationship with them. And when that happens, another debt is created. And that debt has to be paid in some way. Either the person, um, either the person who does the offense will pay it by making up for what they did, or you will pay it by just absorbing the anger and the resentment and the bitter you feel towards the other. But in any case, in order for that relationship to be healed, that schism to be um, reconciled, forgiveness has to come, and that forgiveness is going to come with a cost. And then you just parallel this one more step, and you think about your relationship with God. If the Bible's worldview is true, which I believe with all my heart it is, you were created by God and for God, but you are also a sinner who is separated from God. You have offended God, and you have not honored God. You have not loved God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You have not loved your neighbor as yourself, and this is what the Bible would say is sin. And that sin creates a debt between you and God. And that debt, like all debts, must be paid. It's not going to disappear. So the burden then becomes either you're going to pay that debt or God's going to pay the debt. And if you try to pay that debt, I assure you, you don't have enough money. You will never be able to make up for the offense your sin has caused and the fracture your sin has created in your relationship with God. 
So then what's the solution? Well, the solution is a loving God who loves unconditionally, unilaterally, sending his son into the world who must suffer, who must be rejected, who must be killed, who must rise again. A God who's willing to pay your debt for you. But understand that your debt was paid not because God swept your sin away. Your debt was paid because Christ was crucified. The punishment, the debt, the payment your sin deserved was placed upon Christ. He paid it for you. And the beauty of the gospel is that he paid it for you in such a way that suffices it for all eternity. Past, present, and future. The debt is paid by Christ in Christ for those who would trust the Christ. So he died for the sake of love, and he died for the sake of forgiveness. But you go one step further, and you consider this text again, and you understand that Christ died. He had to be crucified for the sake of the, what, what Tim Keller refers to as for the, the cosmos, that Christ died for the sake of the cosmos. And what he's getting after is this idea that when you look at what is said about the Messiah in verse 31, It says that Jesus had to be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. These were the religious leaders. These were the religious elite. These were the people in charge. This was the people everyone looked up to. This was the people that everyone trusted. These were the leaders of the first century Jerusalem world. And what that reminds us is that Jesus' death did not happen as a result of some momentary lapse or some aberration of, the human, of human nature, but that Jesus' death was the result of careful deliberations. Careful deliberations from respected religious leaders, religious leaders who would even justify their actions by the highest standards of law and morality. These were people who, when they crucified Christ, they believed they were doing it in service to God. So it's a wild scene for Jesus to say, this is what Jesus must, or that he must endure these things. Jesus then, you think about that, and you just think about the analogy between this moment and the world that we live in and all that people endure. Jesus suffered Injustice, the injustice of a corrupt legal system, the injustice of a corrupt religious system. Jesus suffered oppression and injustice when he was crucified. And it was something we are told that Christ had to endure. You hold on to that and then you slide into a passage like Colossians chapter 2. And in Colossians chapter 2, we are told that when Christ was crucified, he died to defeat uh, the powers and the principalities of the spiritual realm, the heavenly places. To understand what that means, you come back to what Jesus says to Peter. As Jesus is talking about how he must die, and then Peter tries to talk him out of it. But notice Jesus' discernment, because when Peter, when Jesus rebukes Peter, notice what he says. He says, get behind me, Satan. He says, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Jesus calls Peter Satan. And the reason for that is because he knows that there's, there's a theory that can be made that Satan knew that if Christ died on the cross, that that death would be atoning and it would be his defeat. There's a, the, there's a, there's a case that can be made that Satan was aware of that possibility. Which is why Satan tried to talk Jesus out of going to the cross earlier in Mark chapter One, when he's enduring his temptations. All the temptations tried to prevent Jesus from going to his crucifixion. 
Then here you have a moment where Peter tries to talk Jesus out of coming, going to the crucifixion. And then Jesus rebu- rebukes Peter. Call, um, Jesus calls him Satan. Because Satan sensed, well, if that happens, then that might mean something very tragic for me. And all of a sudden you get this picture of how when Christ was crucified and when Christ was risen, that represented the way in which Jesus would defeat not only our sin, but Satan and death. Jesus would defeat all of the cosmic forces that stand in opposition of the kingdom of God. Not only in this world, but what you're going to find when you look at the way of discipleship is that Jesus died to defeat all of that that stands in opposition to your entering into your experience and enjoyment of the kingdom of God now and forever. This is why I believe Jesus would then weave the, his crucifixion into the fate of his disciples and saying, if you're going to really live, if you're going to have life, you've got to die in a very similar way. You've got to deny yourself. You've got to take up your cross. You've got to follow me. That life comes from death. And, and so he would move. Or he would say the reason Christ had to die was to create this hope and this power and this future for us that is not plagued and opposed by a dominating force who could defeat you, defeat Jesus, or whatever the case may be. But what's awesome about this whole picture is that the way Jesus would defeat the enemy is by subverting the enemy. He would defeat him not by flexing his muscles, but by submitting his life and dying on the cross as a sacrifice of atonement, taking any ammo that the enemy had and could use effectively against you Jesus took it away through his crucifixion and his resurrection so that now when Satan steps up and he accuses you of not being worthy of the kingdom and he accuses you of not being worthy of God's love, his accusations, although they may be true, his accusations still fall flat. He may step up and accuse you of sin and he may be right about your sin, but that still doesn't change this victory that you have in Christ, that Christ had to die for the sake of the cosmos. He had to die to overthrow the, the demonic oppression of a fallen world. And so he tells Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're not thinking about the things of God. You're thinking about the things of men. And then Jesus would move from there into verse 34, and he would focus. He would move seamlessly from talking about the way of the cross, uh, the way of the Christ, to the way of the disciple. This is what he says. He starts drawing the implications from verse 34. And Jesus called to him the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? For what can a man give in return for his life? And in this passage, even going on to 38, which we'll look at in a moment, we begin to see how the way of the disciple is the way of the Christ. His way is our way. Our way is his way. Our fate is woven together. And there are echoes, there are implications for you and I and our discipleship as we try to experience and benefit from his crucifixion and his resurrection. So we want to identify real quick these three facets of a disciple's cruciformed life. He's saying if the way of the Christ is the way of the cross, well, then the way of the disciple is what might be described as a cruciformed life. That's a word that means your life is now to be shaped by this reality. Your life is to be shaped, formed by the cross. The cross is your paradigm as you journey through this world. 
Dying to self and raising to life. Dying to live. And so you have this paradigm. And it's very emphatic. Jesus would use, he would refer to life multiple times in verses 34 and 35. And the word that he used for life there is a Greek word called psyche. It's a word that we get our English term psychology from. It's a word that speaks to a person's personality. It's a word, I think the closest equivalent to our understanding today, is it's a word that speaks to your identity. He's getting after the core of who you are, your sense of self. This is what Jesus is targeting in this moment. That, that, that sense of self that you have that you believe makes you distinct or that you believe makes you valuable. And then Jesus says something radical because he says that sense of self, your very identity, is what must be denied. And then he says you must take up your cross. You must die to it. You must follow Christ by denying your very sense of self. Now, when we talk about self-denial, understand that we're not talking about denying something to the self. That's easy. This is something far more substantial than denying yourself chocolate during Lent. This isn't what Jesus is getting after. He's not saying deny something to yourself. He's saying deny yourself itself. It's far more radical. It's far more radical. He's saying deny your sense of self-determination. Deny your sense of feeling like you have to establish your own identity apart from God. He's going after the very temptation that was present in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve tried to establish an existence and an identity apart from God. That's what the temptation was. If you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall be like God. You shall be independent. You shall be autonomous. This is what human beings have been doing ever since. And Jesus is saying, you got to die to that. That's not the way of the kingdom. The way of the kingdom isn't you trying to establish your own identity and your own existence apart from God. No, you have to die to that entirely. And when you do, that's when you're going to find life. When you do, that's when the kingdom of God is going to birth in you, and you're going to become the person God originally created and redeemed you to be. A person who isn't roaming the world without an identity, you become a person who is now roaming the world with an indestructible identity. You are given a new self, a new identity, an identity that cannot be touched by anything or taken away ultimately. This is what Jesus is going after in this, in this moment. This is why he would say in verse 36, What does it profit a person if you gain the whole world, but you forfeit your life, your identity, your soul? Verse 37, For what world or for what can a man give in return of his life? The obvious answer to that is nothing. Life is too valuable. Identity is too important. So Jesus is saying, so, so die to your, your fallen identity and be swept up with a new resurrected identity. Shift from an identity that is built on what you do and how well you do it and step into an identity that is formed by what Christ has done and how well he did it. You see, you are not your bank account. You are not your job. You are not your marriage. Your identity as a follower of Jesus, only becomes indestructible when your identity is in Christ. Any other identity that you are seeking to build and establish in this world can and inevitably will be taken away from you. I know this because death is batting a thousand in this world. 
But what we have in Christ is hope. What we have in Christ is an identity in him that starts now and extends far beyond our physical death. An identity that death itself cannot take away. It's a, it's a new self. It's a new life that is indestructible. And when we get this, when we find ourselves there, suddenly we're, we're free to love people in the way the gospel compels us to love. We're free to serve people in the way the gospel frees us to serve. This is why a guy by the name of John Patton, who was following Jesus, who died to himself in order to do so, he sensed Jesus leading him to bring the gospel to a group of islands that had a reputation uh, for being cannibalistic. Every outsider, whether they were Christian or not, any outsider, whoever found themselves in these islands ministering or working amongst these people would, the track record before Patton showed up was they were eaten. These were cannibals that would eat outsiders, right? And so when Patton began to say, I think Jesus is leading me to love these people and to bring the gospel to them, when he expressed that desire, many people protested and said, don't go because cannibals are going to eat you. But then Patton responded, you know, I'm already dead. You can't kill a dead man. I've died to my false sense of self. I'm, I've died to that which, that which the world tells me I must preserve. And when he died to what the world told him he must preserve and he must maintain, when he died to that and he entrusted himself entirely to God, he became free to love people who would try to eat him one day. And so he goes, risking everything. You see, when you find yourself in an indestructible identity and you start dying to yourself in this kind of way, all of a sudden you, your life begins to echo the life of Jesus. This is when the teachings of Jesus start making sense. This is when the miracles of Jesus start manifesting themselves in your soul and in your life and perhaps even through your ministry because what happens is once you find yourself here, you begin to assume an other-oriented posture. All of a sudden, you begin to love people for the sake of them. You begin to love, not in a consumeristic fashion, but in a way that contributes to their life, that contributes to their joy, that contributes to their glory, that contributes to their hope, that contributes to their benefit, whether you benefit from them in any way or not. The way of the disciple is an indestructible identity and an other-oriented posture. Now, one of the reasons why I love, admire a guy by the name of Jim Elliott is because I believe that um, one of the reasons why I admire Jim Elliott, who was a 28-year-old missionary martyr, is because he was the type of guy who didn't believe his own hype. Elliott, perhaps you know, is a guy that Jesus called to take the gospel to an unreached people group in Ecuador, and one of the, a group that was notoriously hostile to outsiders. Well, what's interesting about Elliot's story is that when he first shared his holy ambition with his friends and family, people protested. They tried to talk him out of going. See, they wanted him to stick around in North America believing that he would be able to establish his name in this society, that he could become an influential pastor of a large church. Some even suggested to Elliot that he could be uh, as influential as the then up-and-coming Billy Graham back in the 40s and 50s and that type of thing. And to be sure, Elliot was a gifted man. He possessed remarkable gifts in teaching, preaching, and leadership. People flocked to him. And many then discouraged his desire to go elsewhere and to serve an obscure group of people in the jungles of Ecuador. They thought he would waste his potential. But again, Elliot was the type of guy who didn't believe his own hype, and so he refused to consider himself indispensable. He continued to try to preserve himself and to promote himself. Instead, he died to himself and he went to Ecuador and he gave his life 
bringing the gospel to this tribe. But there was one day when he was reading through the book of Ecclesiastes. And if you ever want to get discouraged, read Ecclesiastes. And, and he was reading Ecclesiastes and meditating and praying. And then he turned to his journal and he penned these words. Listen to what he says. He said, you know, let me read this passage when I get hungering after civilizations, excitements, and excesses in some lonely place. Take counsel then, my soul. The whole of life is vanity, and you would be no happier in brighter atmospheres. Woe and loneliness may be, more miser- may be miserable, but hollow happiness and many in a crowd are much more so. In other words, he understood with this other-oriented posture that following Christ was more important to him than any other, any other endeavor. Had he thought otherwise, he would have stayed in America surrounded by agreeable admirers rather than risking and eventually losing his life at the end of an Indian spear. Had he done so, an entire people group would have remained alienated from God. They would, have not have known, they would not have known the love that God had for them in Christ. But because he was other-oriented, he went for them to love them and to serve them. They will now stand with him around the throne of King Jesus in worship and in praise for all eternity. You see, the story of a guy like Elliot reminds us that you and I cannot be full of ourselves and follow Christ at the same time. And the reason for that is that the natural self will always desire decisions that serve its inflation rather than its deflation. We will always desire our self-preservation, our self-promotion. But if we hear the words of the gospel, if we catch the culture of the kingdom and we realize that life comes through death, that as we deny ourselves and we take up our cross, that's when we find our true selves. That's when we find our true lives. And all of a sudden, we're free to love. We're able to assume an other-oriented posture to bless the people around us in unconditional, unilateral, ridiculously radical kinds of ways. This was Eliot's story. This was his, his approach. And then the story goes on as you look at Jesus' conversation as he talks about what can a man give in return for his life. And then it moves to verse 38. Listen to what Jesus then says. He then says, for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. That's a, that's a tough verse to read. The idea of being ashamed of Jesus kind of makes the, the heart cringe. Those who know Jesus, you're like, well, why would we ever want to be ashamed of Jesus? But then the idea of Jesus being ashamed of us, that just makes us shrivel up altogether. That's a frightening dynamic. Whoever is ashamed of Jesus and his words will, one day, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him. Notice notice the challenge there, though. He says, whoever is ashamed of me, but then he makes this very concrete. He takes it into an earthy direction. You see, sometimes we can talk about following Jesus, denying ourselves, giving ourselves to Christ, honoring Jesus, loving Jesus, and we can talk about it in such abstract and glorious terms that we forget that there may be things about Jesus that we are tempted to be ashamed of. And usually our temptation to be ashamed of Jesus isn't tied to the idea of Jesus because ideas can be abstract. Our temptation to be ashamed of Jesus happens when we get into the words of Jesus. There's a reason why Jesus didn't just say, who's ashamed of me? There's a reason why Jesus says, who's ashamed of me and my words, my teaching, the things I'm instructing about God, the things I'm saying about kingdom, the things I'm saying about life, the things I'm saying about salvation. 
that's where this whole idea of not being ashamed of Jesus becomes earthy. It becomes tangible. So it's not just not being ashamed of Jesus. It's not being ashamed of his words, his ways, his teaching. And that's where the rub is for many of us. Because the reality is there are many things that Jesus says that we're tempted to be ashamed of in our culture. We're going to see several of them over the next few weeks. We're going to look at Jesus' teaching on hell in Mark chapter, at the end of Mark chapter 9. We're going to look at what Jesus has to say about marriage and divorce. And there's going to be a temptation for every one of us to be ashamed of what Jesus has to say there. But the only way that temptation can be resisted if you and I hear what Jesus said prior to that moment. And we hear Jesus say, when you deny yourself, you'll find yourself. When you, when you give, when you lose your life, that's when you're going to find your life. Only when, we get, only when we start there will we be able to run into verse 38 and then actually flip 38 on its head and twist it in a positive sense, in a good positive sense. Twisting, that's not a good word. But hear it in a positive sense because the opposite of shame is what? It's honor. So there's a sense in which, as disciples who found life in Christ, we're not going to be ashamed of Jesus. We're going to honor Jesus. We're going to honor who he is. We're going to honor his teaching. And the way that we do that is through obedience, through submission, through self-denial, through cross-bearing, by following Jesus in that way. We're going to honor him. But here's the amazing part. Not only do we honor Jesus, if there's a sense in which the Son of Man would be ashamed of us, the flip side of that is there's a moment when the Son of Man will be will not be ashamed of us, but he will actually honor us. The opposite of shame is honor. And Jesus honors those who follow him. He honors those who trust in him. He honors those who believe in him. Now, don't hear that and twist that in some man-centered, human-centered kind of way. Hear that in a God-honoring kind of way. Hear that in a way that says the creator of the universe is going to honor me the way that The father honored the son when he spoke earlier in this gospel. This is my beloved son. That's honor. It's an honor that says to everyone who trusts in Jesus, this is my beloved disciple. This is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter. This is a God who owns us, who prizes us, who possesses us, not because we bring anything to the table, but because he's loving, he's forgiving, he's victorious. This is a God who honors those who who are in the kingdom, honors those who have heard Jesus' words and trusted them and followed them. So the way of the disciple is an indestructible identity, an other-oriented posture, and then it brings us into an incomparable honor. Incomparable honor. An incomparable honor. An honor that cannot be matched by any other resource in this world. To know that you're honored by Jesus liberates you to assume an other-oriented posture. Being honored by Jesus liberates you to be able to, to not be ashamed of who Jesus is and his words because you're living for his honor, his glory, and not anyone, else, anyone else's. There's a moment in J.R.R. Tolkien's, Jordan and I were talking about this the other day, but in J.R.R. Tolkien's uh, trilogy, The Lord of the Rings, there comes a moment in the second book, The Two Towers, where one of the characters makes this statement, and I think Tolkien is reflecting this idea. He says, the honor of the praiseworthy is above all rewards. The honor of the praiseworthy is above all rewards. Is anyone more praiseworthy than Jesus? No. Therefore, his honor is above all rewards. We die to self and we live to Christ because his honor, the honor of the praiseworthy is above all rewards. C.S. Lewis, towards the end of his book called Mere Christianity, a book I'd highly encourage each one of you to read, 
he would reflect on this passage and summarize it in a way that's better than I can. And so let me share with you his words and then we'll close. C.S. Lewis issues this charge after reflecting upon this dynamic. He said, as disciples, or as a disciple, you are to give up yourself and you will then find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, the death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and the death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will be really yours anyways. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him. With Christ, everything else will come thrown in, meaning with Christ, you will be given an indestructible identity. With Christ, you'll be giving an honor that eclipses any other honor you could possibly live for. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would give us grace to do that. Let us be a people who look to Christ and find him. Let us be a people who keep back nothing. Let us be a people who hear your words and the hope that that is found therein and Take them to heart, take them in, and believe them, trust them, and respond to them appropriately. God, let there be room for the crucifixion and resurrection in our Christianity. Let there be room for it in our lives and in our church. Let it be room for it in our ministries and our approach to life, all in Jesus' name.